weekly appellate report for January 5th, 2018, first show of the new year. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. This week, the California Supreme Court entertained arguments in San Francisco. A number of prominent cases One's a nearly decade-long battle over the constitutionality of a state law requiring the compulsory collection of DNA from all felony arrestees, some number of whom, of course, never end up being convicted or even charged of a crime. We'll be joined by Michael Risher, senior staff attorney with the ACLU of Northern California, who's fought the law since its voter-backed enactment in 2009, who is an amicus in the case just argued people versus Busa. But first, let's get to our opening briefs. The Ninth Circuit issued a noteworthy First Amendment ruling this week, striking down most of an Idaho law that had criminalized the secret recording of agricultural operations, sort of video footage often taken by undercover animal rights activists posing as farm workers to document and expose inhumane practices. As reported by our own Nick Sonnenberg, the viral video that prompted Idaho's law challenge in this case had shown dairy workers repeatedly beating, kicking, and jumping on cows and dragging them by chains affixed to their necks. The majority of a split panel referenced Upton Sinclair's depiction of gruesome meatpacking plant conditions in his work The Jungle to underscore the importance of investigative journalism in America and to thereby assail the law's motives, which the majority viewed as clearly aimed at squelching the speech of undercover journalists. As to the case's doctrinal points, the majority deemed much of the law staggeringly overbroad, as it put it, and thus invalidated its banning of audio and video recordings of agricultural facility operations, as well as a provision that criminalized the use of misrepresentations to enter a production facility. Judge Bea dissented as to that latter provision, writing that the court should recognize an owner's right to exclude anyone from entering his property for any reason at all, or indeed for no reason. Bea did concur that the portions banning recording would fail First Amendment review. The majority did uphold a portion of the law that criminalizes obtaining employment by misrepresentation with the intent to cause economic or other injury. So, though much of the law was invalidated, it's probably not altogether clear at this juncture to what extent its remaining vestiges can prevent the sort of undercover videos that prompted the law in the first place. Many other agricultural states have laws on the books similar to Idaho's, so one thing is certain, the Ninth Circus decision won't be the final word on the question. In San Francisco, the California High Court heard argument in several matters this week. In one closely followed case arising from a gruesome stabbing in the UCLA chemistry lab, the court considered whether state public universities owe their students a duty of care while those students are in the classroom, and and whether schools must warn students and protect them from foreseeable acts of violence, such as the one here which was arguably foreseeable because its perpetrator had been treated by UCLA mental health professionals for displaying symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia. A divided second district court found no such duty existed, reasoning in part that it would be unreasonable to expect a university to vouchsafe at all times the physical well-being of its thousands of adult students, but there, dissenting Justice Perlis made the case that a limited duty, one applying only in, say, the classroom, and perhaps only where a school has reason to foresee a potential violent act, could be proper. Find out which tack the court decides to take here in the next couple of months. Arguments were also heard on whether an anti-slap motion can be brought against claims in an amended complaint, where those claims had already appeared in an initial pleading, and whether Prop 47's reduction of certain felonies to misdemeanors has retroactive application for those who were sentenced before the law's effective date but whose judgments were not final until after the law took effect. Perhaps the most salient argument for those heard in the case of People for Spuza 
where justices weighed whether a law requiring that DNA be collected from all felony arrestees, whether or not they eventually are charged or convicted, could pass muster under the state constitution. The First District Court of Appeal has already said twice that it cannot, once after the High Court remanded the case for further consideration in light of a recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling upholding a similar Maryland law. Our guest Michael Risher, senior staff attorney with the ACLU of Northern California, filed an amicus brief in support of the defendant. He joins us now to discuss the case's competing arguments. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is a case that you have been involved with um, for, for several years now, I think since 2009, since the law went into effect. Part of the reason that the case has gone on so long, as we'll get into, it's already been up to the Supreme Court once before, and now this week um, heard argument the case centers around a particular penal code section, which it's one that, as an amicus supporting the original defendant, um, you believe is unconstitutional. Um, so it, it requires, and correct me if, in fact, it just allows, but I believe it requires that DNA samples via a, a cheek swab must be taken from felony arrestees. Um, is that right? And, and this law um, wasn't sort of from whole cloth. It was an amendment added to previous laws relating to, to DNA collection um, from arrestees or those convicted um, that had already existed. This one was added by a voter initiative. Do I have most of that right? What had, had existed sort of before this law passed? Well, the state of California has been taking DNA from some people involved in the criminal justice system for uh, for much longer than, than Prop 69. This law has been in effect. They started off taking it from people convicted of very serious crimes, people convicted of murder, rape, and, and such. Uh, and then with uh, Prop 69 in 2006, immediately began taking it from people convicted of any sort of felony, uh, no matter how minor. So back then, simple drug possession. The, uh, the most controversial part about Prop 69 is what we're talking about today. It also expanded uh, collection, although it had a, a phasing period, just people who have been convicted of, of criminal offenses, not just even people who have been uh, charged with criminal offenses, but anyone who had been arrested for any felony uh, starting on January 1st, 2009. So that's kind of the progression of DNA collection in California, starting with people actually convicted of very serious crimes and ended up where we are now uh, with people who are merely arrested of, of any sort of felony, no matter how minor. So sort of moving up further and further earlier in the chronology of the, the criminal procedure timeline then. Um, yeah. as, as we mentioned at the outset, this case has, has been to the California Supreme Court once, although it was only granted review, um, and then kicked down to the Court of Appeal for it to take another look at it. The Court of Appeal had, had struck down this law, um, but then in the time between that ruling um, and the, the high court's opportunity to take a look. There was a U.S. Supreme Court case, Maryland v. King, which upheld, um, which at least on its surface seems to be a pretty similar law. And so the Court of Appeal was directed to, to take another look. It, it, it did so and decided one more time to, to strike down the law. Um, walk, walk me through the, the procedure and, and why, notwithstanding that law, that at least the, the California Supreme Court thought was fairly on point enough to kick this case back down. Did the Court of Appeal nonetheless still uh, strike down this law? Well, there are really two reasons. Uh, one of them is that uh, the Court of Appeal primarily ruled under the state constitution, which, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court hadn't dealt with. Uh, and the other is that there are significant differences between California's law and the law at issue in King, uh, which matter um, and mean that even if uh, 
even under even under the Fourth Amendment, California's law of constitutionality is not um, is not assured. And let me say also, not only have I been amicus in this case, but we filed back in 2009, the year this went into effect, a uh, class action civil challenge in federal court to the same uh, statute, asserting that it did violate the Fourth Amendment. Judge Breyer of the district court here uh, declined to grant us a preliminary injunction. We went to the Ninth Circuit. A panel originally uh, affirmed that ruling. The court granted rehearing on banc, but then after oral arguments, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court granted King. King was decided. They reheard the case on banc and eventually kicked the case back down to Judge Breyer, who has now uh, stayed at pending the outcome of Booza. So that's a, a direct challenge to this law under the Fourth Amendment. Uh, the case is Haskell v. v. Harris at this point, uh, okay. or was, and uh, asserting or explaining why this, this law violates the Fourth Amendment in spite of, uh, of, of King. But perhaps more importantly here in the California courts, uh, the California Supreme Court has long held, in cases going back to the, the early 70s, that Article 1, Section 13, California's prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures is more protective than the Fourth Amendment, and in particular is more protective of arrestee privacy than the Fourth Amendment is. And, of course, that's what we're talking about here, the privacy of people who've been arrested, not charged, not convicted of a crime. So what the Court of Appeal did here was to look at those cases, uh, ranging back from, from the early 70s, as I said, and apply them to this new technology and say, well, even if this passes muster under the Fourth Amendment, it violates the California Constitution as construed, as long construed by, by our Supreme Court. Okay. Now, on, on that particular point, we could set aside for a moment the sort of distinguishing facts that uh, also might make King, in, in your view, less applicable, uh, and also in the Court of Appeals, view, less applicable to uh, the case here. Um, but the point about the, the differing standards between the federal constitution and the state constitution, of course, um, the, the former sets the threshold below which state constitutions can't be beneath, but does not prohibit states from providing greater uh, protections to their citizens, of course. Um, one, one of the, the government's main arguments is that King does control here, and in part in parcel to that argument is that because King says uh, such a, a law um, there, it's pretty similar in that case to here, um, allows or is permissible under the Fourth Amendment, uh, it should uh, be permissible under the California Constitution because those provisions, the protections against searches and seizures, are basically identical in both constitutions and and therefore, um, and also that precedent has generally suggested that where um, the two constitutions have you know, pretty similar provisions, they should be interpreted the same way. Um, are they sort of overlooking some some precedent that you think pretty clearly uh, distinguishes a, or uh, demonstrates there's a, a higher standard required by the California Constitution? Yeah, so of course they are. I mean, the government's job in this case is to defend the statute and the clearest way for them to do that is to say that the California Supreme Court should, as a matter of comedy, follow uh, follow King and hold that the California Constitution is no more protective than the Fourth Amendment. But that's, uh, and it's true, the language of the constitu constitutional provisions are similar, uh, but that's never mattered uh, here in California. It is clear, it's written straight into our con Constitution, that the protections of the California Constitution are not dependent on the protections of the U.S. Constitution. And uh, so looking more closely at the cases I mentioned, 
the the main one or the leading one is is People v. Brizendine. It's a case from the early 70s uh, where the police arrested a, a young man and didn't have a real need to search him, uh, search his backpack in that case because they had separated from that, separated him from his backpack. There was no uh, there was no danger that he would grab a weapon out of the backpack or, or anything like that. The U.S. Supreme Court had shortly before held in the Robinson case that when the police arrest somebody, uh, they can search that person and all of his possessions and, and his bags uh, without limit, just to look for more evidence. And the government said, well, that should be the same in, in California. They've arrested him. They should be able to search him uh, for any evidence that they could come up with. The California Supreme Court said no. It said that decision from the U.S. Supreme Court was insufficiently protective of personal privacy. It jettisoned the uh, the rationales for allowing searches of arrestees to prevent, to prevent them from destroying contraband, to prevent them from uh, introducing contraband in the jail that had traditionally, under the Fourth Amendment and more importantly in California, been used to justify some searches of arrestees. And the California Supreme Court said, no, we're not simply going to say that simply because a single police officer arrested you, you lose all of your privacy protections against search and seizures. Yes, the Supreme Court has said that. We refute, we reject that. Uh, it did that several times over the next decade uh, in cases involving, uh, again, arrests where the government asserted very broad search rights based simply on the fact of arrest. And the California Supreme Court and the California Court of Appeal, for that matter, said, no, that may be the law under the Fourth Amendment. It's not the law under the California Constitution. For a long period, since 1983, uh, as some of your listeners may know, there haven't been a lot of cases involving the search and seizure provision of the California Constitution because Proposition 8 in the early 80s um, changed our, didn't change the substantive rules, but, but made it so that we no longer have an exclusionary remedy for violations of the California Constitution. So Article 1, Section 13 is kind of laying in desuetude for, for a period of a couple of decades. Um, which is why the cases I'm talking about are, are from the 70s and not from later. Good law, they still demonstrate that despite the textual similarities between the federal and state provisions, California courts have read Article 1, Section 13 more broadly to protect the right of arrestees and specifically have said that the mere fact of an arrest does not give the police the authority to rummage through the arrestee's personal belongings simply on the hope that they will find evidence to that that person might have committed a crime. And that, of course, is exactly what's going on here. Putting aside kind of the, the policy of King for arrestee testing, we all know that California's arrestee testing program is designed to take DNA from someone who's arrested or DNA from someone who's convicted, put it into the database, and try to solve unsolved offenses. That's what the, the proposition said. That's how it was sold to the voters. And that's what the, uh, and that's what the provisions are plainly intended to do. So this is a modern day rummaging through an arrestee's possessions. Here it's not just his possessions, it's his physical body looking for evidence that he's committed a crime. That's exactly what the U.S. Supreme Court has said is okay under the Fourth Amendment, but the California Supreme Court has refused to allow under Article 1, Section 13. Okay, now as as I read your brief, there's a 
uh, sort of independent basis for for why King shouldn't control here, um, setting aside that it, it didn't, of course, deal with the California Supreme Court or the California Constitution. Um, and that's just that the, the laws at issue are distinct enough that um, it, it wouldn't be um, quite – the cases are not on all fours. How How is that case to, distinguished from the one that before the California Supreme Court? Well, there, there are three real differences between the California and the Maryland laws uh, that distinguish the two. Uh, the first of which is perhaps the least important, although it, it's still significant, in that the Maryland law applied only to a subset of serious felonies. It didn't apply to your run-of-a-mill drug case, for example. It only applied to murder and robbery and rape and, and some types of burglary. California's law only uh, excuse me, applies to, to any felony, no matter how unlikely it is the DNA evidence might be implicated in it. The second uh, difference, and perhaps the, the most important one, is that the Maryland law didn't apply it to people who were arrested uh, and then cut loose without being charged uh, and without having a judge look at their case. To put that uh, in, a more, in a more positive light, Maryland restricted DNA testing to people who had been not just arrested, but actually charged with an offense, and who, uh, where a judge had found probable cause to believe that that person was guilty of one of these enumerated felonies. So what does that mean? In California, approximately 17%, these aren't the most recent figures, but a few years ago that was accurate, of uh, felony arrestees, looking at maybe 300,000 people a year, are uh, freed without even be, being charged. Either the police decide that they're not guilty, uh, didn't do anything, or the district attorney declines to charge them. In Maryland, none of those people would have their DNA tested. It might be taken, it would automatically be expunged uh, as soon as the district attorney, as soon as they, they weren't charged, or as soon as the judge said there was no probable cause to hold them. In California, on the other hand, every one of those persons has his DNA taken, analyzed, and put in the database, uh, unless they can go through a rather complicated expungement procedure. Uh, so that's, that's a, an enormous difference. Third difference is one that I just alluded to, which is that in Maryland, you have automatic expungement. If somebody's DNA sample was taken and either they weren't charged or the district attorney, or excuse me, a judge didn't find probable cause to hold them, or if their case was dismissed or if they were eventually acquitted, so basically unless they were convicted, the sample's automatically expunged. In California, that doesn't happen. You have very, very few people who've successfully gone through the expungement procedure. I don't have exact numbers, but I, I don't think it's more than than a hundred people total out of literally tens of thousands who should be eligible for that. Uh, and the government may say, well, it's not so difficult. You just have to fill out a form. Well, that's actually not what the statute says. The statute prescribes a very comp complicated for a layperson procedure involving notice to the district attorney, waiting period of time, going to court, uh, and so forth to, uh, to have your sample expunged with no guarantee of success. It's, it's discretionary, um, for the court to expunge it or not to expunge it with no real rules. Uh, and the reality is that, that almost nobody is making use of that. So those are, those are three important differences that distinguish California's law from Maryland's and, and suggest that even under the Fourth Amendment, uh, Maryland's, even if Maryland's law is, is constitutional, California's is not. Okay, now you began to hint at it a bit earlier. Uh, some of the briefing tends to focus on the, the principal intended use of um, the DNA information with the, the government's 
focus tending to be on the identification uh, uses of, of the DNA material that can help them to be sure they've they've got the right person basically. And um, whereas your brief tends to focus on the investigative uses of the DNA uh, material that it will allow law enforcement to, to, to use it to investigate whether the, the person they're holding has perpetrated um, other crimes. Um, why, I suppose, is that difference so important in, in this case? Well, the difference is important for two reasons. First of all, I think it's important to actually... Uh, <laughs> Uh, judge law is based on reality and not some made-up justification for them. Everybody in the criminal justice system, everybody involved in DNA testing, understands that the overwhelming purpose, not just the primary purpose, the overwhelming purpose of these DNA testing programs is to try to solve cold cases, is to try to solve unsolved crimes. And the notion that DNA is somehow being used to track people as they move through the criminal justice system, it, it, it's really absurd. And Justice Scalia and his uh, dissent in King pointed that out and really excoriated the majority for uh, making up facts that no party had advanced in order to justify upholding the law without completely warping Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. So one reason it's it's important to keep that distinction in mind is because it's just the truth, and we don't want to uh, uphold laws based on a fiction. Okay, doctrinally, why is it important? Well, the Fourth Amendment and Article One, Section 13 prohibit unreasonable searches and seizures, and the courts have said that uh, time over, time and over, that that means you usually should get a warrant unless there are exigent circumstances in a criminal case, meaning some sort of emergency that, uh, or you're doing a search not for law enforcement purposes, but for some sort of special needs. Uh, and so the special needs doctrine is one that's been brought in to justify things like uh, drug testing of students, drug testing of employees, searches of businesses for regulatory purposes. And the idea is that when you have a primary purpose of a search, uh, or a, a program of searches more accurately, that is for something other than regular law enforcement purposes, which is detecting and preventing crime, the uh, the Fourth Amendment standards are relaxed. Uh, it is, as I said, clear that what, peop what the, these DNA samples are being collected for is to connect people with unsolved crimes. That is a prototypical law enforcement purpose. You want to know if somebody committed a crime, if someone's committed a crime, well, you take their DNA and you run it through against all these other crime scenes samples and see whether it matches. Uh, and so, under Fourth Amendment and Article 1, Section 13 jurisprudence, the police can't simply do that without a warrant, uh, without some other judicial authorization. Um, if, on the other hand, you had a system, arguably like fingerprints, which are, in fact, used to uh, identify people in the criminal justice system, make sure that the Michael Risher you've arrested today is the same Michael Risher that you arrested three years ago and was convicted of an offense and sent to prison. Uh, if you also use that system to see whether my prints match up with uh, some crime scene prints, but that's not the primary purpose, well, okay, for, for quite some time our 
Fourth Amendment jurisprudence has said it's okay to also use that, that fingerprint for the secondary purpose, so long as the primary purpose really is one that's unrelated to simple crime detection. Uh, and so that's why this distinction is important doctrinally. We know that the purpose of collecting DNA from arrestees is to run them against crime scenes and um, and see whether they're, they're guilty of some unsolved crime. We know that in the vast majority of cases, it takes several weeks, if not several months, to get DNA results back. There's absolutely no way it is, those can be used, in the short term at least, to identify an arrestee uh, using the, the current technology. Um, so what we have is a search of an arrestee, not for any particular need, not for jail safety, not to monitor people, not to try to uh, prevent the introduction of contraband into the jail uh, or weapons, uh, but simply to see whether this arrestee might be guilty of some unknown other crime. It's a prototypical law enforcement purpose to precedent, uh, precedents in California. That's something that... that uh, under decades of precedence in, in California, it's clear the police cannot grasp as an excuse for that sort of investigatory search. That example that you cite, or that comparison that you cite of, of fingerprints, uh, was one that I was going to use to, to push back a bit. And, and as you say, uh, fingerprints, it's a pretty accepted um, thing to be taken from arrestees to, to identify them. But also, as you say, um, they're sent to uh, the FBI database to, to run checks to see if there's some outstanding uh, crime scene but, uh, fin fingerprints that could be matched up. Um, and so they're also used for an investigatory purpose. Um, does that make the distinction there a bit less clean, or is it um, still uh, a pretty uh, big difference between the, the primary purpose being identification in, in that instance and the primary purpose of DNA collection being investiga investigatory? Well, it's it there, there are really three differences between at least three differences between fingerprints and DNA that are relevant here, uh, probably four. I mean, the first is the one you just identified. The primary purpose of taking the rest of these fingerprints is to figure out, in the literal sense, who is this person? Name, date of birth. Does he have a rap sheet that of uh, that we know about? Uh, and that has been that was the historical purpose, and it's still the primary purpose that they're used for today. And doctrinally, that matters. Uh, the second reason is that uh, fingerprinting is not really a search. Uh, your fingerprints are something that you expose to the public, and doctrinally, again, the courts have said that, that it's not a search. Now, you need reason to detain somebody and, before you can fingerprint them, uh, but you're not view anything about the person other than a pattern ridges on the fingers. DNA potentially reveals a whole lot about the person. It's your entire genetic blueprint, uh, and that's part of the reason this whole taking DNA from arrestees is so uh, troubling, because DNA is so much more than just a fingerprint. Uh, and the other reason is that, um, as I said, you, you can't actually use DNA, at least using current technology, to, to do quick identification of people as you can with the fingerprint. Okay, uh, now sort of... Uh... Broadly speaking, the, the question of whether a search and seizure is reasonable is uh, kind of one that involves some balancing between governmental interests and, and benefits and societal costs and, and private costs as well. Um, 
on the side of, of, of benefits here, the government, it's brief, cites a few basically saying that public safety is engendered by allowing for this sort of DNA collection. And, and some examples that you've given would seem to suggest that's true if cold cases will be solved by this by this collection um, that could adhere engender some public safety. Um, but from, from, your, from your briefing, of course, uh, it sounds like you are a bit more skeptical when it comes to the benefits that could accrue and, and ha- have highlighted more of the, the costs. Uh, tell me more about, uh, about your balancing compared to how the, the government does it. The, it's important when we're looking at the benefits uh, to, to make a distinction. And let me start by saying there's no question that DNA evidence has revolutionized the criminal justice system uh, in amazingly good uh, ways. It is incredibly useful for identifying people. DNA testing, putting aside DNA databanks, which is what we're looking at here, has been used to prove a bunch of cases and exonerate a bunch of, of innocent people. That's There's no question about that. The question is whether taking DNA from mere arrestees uh, and putting that in the database is so much more useful than taking it simply when you have a warrant or from people who are actually convicted of an offense to justify the privacy intrusion. And so although we see all sorts of cases where uh, DNA testing of uh, convicted people convicted of crimes and in some cases arrestees have been connected with uh, unsolved cases have been used to, to prove and, and solve those cases. Uh, we see very, very few cases where you have somebody who's arrested, gives DNA sample, and then not ultimately convicted, where that sample goes and is used to uh, connect it to an unsolved crime. And of course, there are a few out of the tens of thousands of DNA samples taken uh, every year. Of course, there are going to be a few. But what the, the population we're talking about here are people who are merely arrested without having been convicted of crimes. So the marginal benefit of taking their DNA samples uh, as is appears to be quite low. Um, and the government claims, well, it's quite high. We can see that, that the hits have gone up after we instituted arrestee testing. Well, that shows nothing, because at the same time arrestee testing has been instituted, the number of Forensic samples, meaning unknown crime scene samples entered into databases, has skyrocketed. And research from the UK and from the RAND Corporation has shown that increasing the number of crime scene samples is much more effective in increasing your hit rate than is, inc- than is, inc- than is increasing the number of known samples. So uh, I have yet to see any convincing evidence that we are actually getting a significant bang for our buck both in terms of the cost of arrestee testing and in terms of the invasion of personal privacy involved in arrestee testing as compared to a testing regimen that only applies to people who are actually convicted of crimes and are therefore presumed guilty rather than taking DNA from people who are presumed innocent. So that's that's the my, my view of the, the benefits of DNA testing. I think they're much less than the government would have us believe. Excuse me, arrestee DNA testing, to be more specific. Uh, as to the costs, they are uh, perhaps less tangible, but no less important. I mean, doctrinally, again, it's a search. And once you start allowing this type of unregulated searches uh, for evidence of crime, we're going down a slippery slope. Uh, and particularly here, 
where we're talking about searches that are conducted based on an arrest that need never be reviewed by a district attorney or a judge, there is the danger that you will have police officers arresting people without probable cause, simply in order to get their DNA sample into the system, knowing that almost nobody is going to go through the steps of having expunged if the officer simply lets the person go uh, without without even referring cases to the case to the district attorney's office. Uh, what do you have then? You have somebody whose DNA has been put into the system uh, because of an officer's either arbitrary or perhaps uh, biased decision to arrest him. Um, and uh, having your DNA in the CODIS system can have real consequences. Putting aside the uh, just the indignity of it, of having your mouth swabbed and, and our our plaintiffs in the Haskell matter uh, submitted declarations that uh, are really quite revealing and just how invasive it was to, after being arrested at, for the most part, protests, um, they were forced to open their mouths and have a, an officer swab the inside of their mouth to take their DNA and put it in a sample in a sample envelope and send it off to the, uh, to the lab for testing. But even putting that aside, we know that Having your DNA in a database makes you automatically subject to, uh, I don't want to say it makes you automatically a suspect of every crime involving DNA evidence because that's a little bit melodramatic, but it does in fact mean that your DNA will then be searched against every crime scene sample that comes in. Um, and some people might say, well, so what? It just means that if you're guilty, you're going to get caught. Well, there are two problems with that reasoning. The first of all is that, uh, or the first one is that uh, sometimes people are arrested wrongly because their DNA happened to be at a crime scene. There was an extremely notorious case out of uh, San Jose. A fellow named Lucas Anderson was arrested for uh, capital murder. Was, uh, was, suppo was supposedly found under the fingernails of the, uh, the murder victim. Uh, it was quickly, not that quickly, after several months, shown that he could not have committed the murder because he was in the hospital uh, for alcohol poisoning when the uh, the crime happened. And what had happened, what had apparently occurred, according to the district attorney, is the, uh, the ambulance personnel who took him to the hospital then went to the crime scene and there was some transfer of his DNA. So here's somebody who, because he was in the DNA, the DNA data bank, uh, was arrested for capital murder that he was, everyone agrees, was completely innocent of. Uh, that's a extremely concrete <laughs> downside of, of having your DNA in the system that if you if you have your DNA taken at arrest, well, okay, maybe that will happen to you. Unlikely, but it's possible. Uh, more broadly, uh, arrestee testing really does reinforce some of the unfortunate biases that are already present in a criminal justice system. We know that racial profiling continues uh, to go on in this country, to go on in this state. And if people who are racially profiled and arrested uh, for things that maybe somebody of a different race, somebody living in a different neighborhood wouldn't be arrested for, uh, and they not only then suffer the indignity of that arrest, maybe they're prosecuted, maybe they aren't, but have their DNA put in the system so that they are then caught if they do something in the future, whereas other people who are fortunate enough not to be subject to racial profiling, not to be subject to arrest simply because they lived in the wrong neighborhood, they're, they're not caught. 
um, and that creates a feedback loop that really can magnify uh, the already troubling uh, disparities in our criminal justice system. Uh, and there are more. There are, there are other consequences of uh, arrestee DNA testing that really should reject it out of hand, but that we should only think that this is constitutional if, in fact, the benefits of testing people who are arrested but never convicted, charged, uh, are sufficiently strong. And I simply don't think the evidence is there. The government is the entity that holds all this evidence. They have the results of all this DNA uh, testing of how many hits they've got from uh, from people who've been arrested but not convicted. And all we hear about is a few anecdotes that, of course, are very powerful, but a few anecdotes out of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands arrests uh, simply don't don't justify this. Okay. Um, one another argument I wanted to ask you about is um, raised in the government's brief, where th- th- there seems to be a suggestion that the government is making that because this law or this amendment to the existing law about DNA searches was enacted via ballot initiative, um, that it deserves some higher level of deference and respect from the judicial branch. Now, this is a question I haven't actually um, seen argued too too much, so uh, it's it's a, it's kind of a novel one uh, for me. What uh, what is your argument on that point? Uh, is is there any higher deference due to uh, ballot initiative measures? Well, I think the reason you don't see it argued very much is because the California Supreme Court rejected it back in 1927 uh, in a <laughs> in a case named, uh, called Wallace v. Zinnin, I think, or Zinman. Uh, again, addressed it in in 1966 in a a case called Weaver, uh, and said, essentially, no, uh, the California Constitution is the supreme law of the land in California and in terms of state law, and if the people want to do, if the people want a law that, that's inconsistent with the Constitution, well, they need to amend the Constitution, and that's why our initiative process has two separate processes for, on the one hand, a statutory initiative, and on the other, a constitutional amendment. Uh, if anything, something the Supreme Court pointed out just in, in 2010 in a criminal case involving an initiative, uh, courts should be more skeptical of laws adopted by initiative because they don't go through the legislative fact-finding process that a normal law would go through. They aren't vetted by uh, the, the council in the same way uh, that a statute would if it would be considered by the legislature. Uh, and so our California courts don't give the same deference to so-called, I mean, things that are written into initiative as legislative findings that they would to true legislative findings. So uh, no argument at all, and neither has the, the California Supreme Court uh, over the last 90 years. Okay. Do you care to, to give any sense of how, how the court might feel about it? No no problem if you don't want to uh, forecast. But I have like no idea. I mean, all I can say sure. is that it is, it is a, obviously an extremely important issue. Uh, it is one that I think Justice Alito in the King arguments called the most important criminal justice question uh, of the last, I forget how many years he mentioned. <laughs> uh, and the California Supreme Court has been uh, for years. Uh, so I suspect that the justices uh, have very developed and perhaps divergent views on it, but I'm not going to make any sort of prediction about what those views might be. 
we'll find out soon enough here uh, within the next 90 days after argument this week um, in the case People vs. Uh For now, we'll leave it there. Michael Risher from the ACLU of Northern California, thanks so much for, uh, for being here to unpack the case for us. I really appreciate it. Glad to do it. You're very welcome. And with that, our show for January 5th, 2018 is complete. Thanks for joining us again this year. Much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'm Brian Cardow. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>